0: take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament prophet Obadiah. The Old Testament Obadiah. We're in the Minor Prophets, and this section is Joel, Amos, Obadiah. In this series of messages, we're going through the Bible book by book, summarizing each of the books to get an understanding of how the Word of God hangs together in the landscape, so to speak, of the scriptures. Today, the prophecy of Obadiah. And here's the key concept for today. God is sovereign over all the nations, sovereign over all the nations. When you come to the book of Obadiah, you come to the shortest book of the Old Testament. And you come to a book that pronounces doom on a long-forgotten people, the people of Edom. And so with that in mind, let me ask you this question. Where on the map is the nation Edom? Notice I didn't ask where was the nation Edom. Where is it today? And maybe you'd say, well, that's not a fair question because there are many nations that now have new names after biblical times, and they've kind of reformed and renamed themselves. And so I'll change the question. Where or who are the descendants, I should say, of the Edomites today? Who are they? The point that I'm making is that there is no nation Edom, and there are no people Who are the descendants of the Edomites today? The nation and the people group no longer exist. And that is what Obadiah is all about. Obadiah is written to the remnants of the Judeans who are scraping their way to find a living after the Babylonian invasion. Those remnants who were left among the rubble, most of the nation has been carried away into captivity. But this is not a prophecy against Judea. This is a prophecy against Judea's next-door neighbor, Edom, their cousins who hated them. In Obadiah verse 3, we hear the word of the Lord. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home in the heights, who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Lord himself promises to punish Edom. Why? And here's where a history lesson is in order. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. The Israelites were the descendants of his twin brother, Jacob Both were sons of Isaac who was the son of Abraham. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel and his family became the nation that incubated the Messiah for the world. It's fascinating to see how the nations which these people founded live in the shadow of the personalities of their founder. Remember it is Esau who was the older twin. And it was Esau who sold his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. And later it was Jacob who deceived his father Isaac and received the double portion of the blessing. And it is through Jacob's line that the nation Israel is born, a nation that carries the promise of the covenant of Abraham. But Esau also founded a nation, but without the promise. In Genesis 36, it says this, Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household as well as his livestock and all the other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan. And he moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. But even though they were separated by some distance, there was bad blood between these brothers. And that bad blood was carried on to their descendants, between the nations. And so when destruction comes to Judah, the Edomites are in no mood to help. And in fact, the Edomites actively aided the enemy. The Edomites joined in with the Babylonians and and looted the houses of, of the Israelites as they were being carted off into captivity. And they barred their gates and not allowed the refugees to escape the violence and run into their land. And Obadiah writes these words in about the year 585 B.C., just after the destruction of Jerusalem. But it is doubtful whether the Edomites ever heard these words. These words, really, are for the consumption of the Israelites. Saying to the Israelites, you are mad at Edom for joining with your enemy and persecuting you in your lowest point. Well, God is mad at Edom as well. And to gain a perspective on how this all works itself out, we need to continue the history lesson to the period in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Because in the chronology of the Old Testament, the Edomites are never conquered. During the period of time that the Old Testament covers, they continue as a land. However, in between the Old and the New Testaments, destruction comes to Edom. The Arab nations rise up, and they actually force the Edomites to leave their country and to move into the south, the southernmost part of Israel. If you were to look on the, your Bible maps in the back of your Bible, it's called the Negev. They're forced to move into that desert region because of the oppression of the Arabs. And this is in about the year 146 B.C., By this time, Israel has returned from their captivity. The Persians have long ago let them come back, and they've reestablished their nation. And this is one of the brief periods of history when Israel is under self-rule. And there, the Edomites come into their southern portion of the country, and Israel goes to war against the Edomites because of that incursion. But the Edomites are no longer called Edomites by then. They're called the Idumeans, because that is the greek pronunciation of their name it shows us the influence of alexander the great who conquered this entire area and the jews go to war to go to war against the idumeans and they conquer the idumeans and they force them to convert to judaism a forced conversion and by the time the idumeans lose that war they have lost their land they have lost their name and they have lost their religion but there is more to come Because fast forward a hundred years into the year 63 B.C. And the Romans arrive in this area of the world. The general by the name of Pompey invades what he calls Palestine. The Roman word Palestine is a corruption of the word Philistine and the Romans named this whole region Palestine and when Pompey invades he does not see a distinction between Idumeans and Israelites to him they're all Jews and he lumps them all together that's how Rome treats it and there is an Idumean leader who quickly sees that it would be best to side with Rome his name is Antipater and so he cooperates with Pompey in his conquest of the area but he doesn't realize that back in Rome, there is a man who is in a power struggle with Pompey. That man's name is Julius. And so and Julius and, and Pompey go to war. Pompey uh, ends up being assassinated, and Julius takes over. We know him as Caesar, Julius, Julius Caesar. and uh, Antipater quickly changes sides, and now is on the side of Julius. He sees that Rome is having trouble settling the the disruption in Egypt, so he sends 3,000 Idumean troops into Egypt, and they are victorious. And because of that victory, Julius awards Antipater with Roman citizenship for life, with freedom from Roman taxes for life, and Julius uh, awards Antipater's son the governorship of a backwater, countrified place called Galilee. And that son is Herod. All goes swimmingly for for a little while, but by the time 44 B.C. comes along, the Roman Senate thinks that Julius is acting too much like a king. And Julius is assassinated. Same year, Antipater is assassinated. Same year, the Parthians, which is the remnant race of the Persians, invade the Holy Land, and Herod flees to Rome. In Rome, Herod makes a friend. His friend's name is Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony recommends to the Roman Senate that Herod be given the kingship of Judea. It seems like a meaningless gesture. He's not even in Judea. But Herod takes it seriously. He raises an army. He returns to Judea. He conquers the Parthians. He he liberates Jerusalem. And by the time he's 36 years old, Herod is now the king of Judea, the king of Galilee, and the king of Idumea, all under Roman authority. And Herod understands that uh, his people hate him. And so uh, the Jews, who he governs, hate him because he's an Idumean and because he's working for Rome. And so he begins a building project that takes 84 years to complete. It is the temple, the temple that Jesus would have worshipped at. Well, back in Rome, Mark Anthony, Herod's patron, falls in love with an Egyptian woman. You know her name? Her name? Cleopatra. Cleopatra, Right. Mark Anthony falls in love with Cleopatra. They move east, and they begin to kind of settle, uh, establish their own little kingdom there, which doesn't sit well with the new power broker in Rome, whose name is Octavian. Octavian and Mark Anthony go to war. It doesn't go well for Mark Anthony. He and Cleopatra end up committing suicide. And Octavian is now the ruler of the entire empire. He changes his title to Augustus, which means the great. And Herod also puts the great on his name. Octavian leaves him in power because he knows him to be a ruthless leader. He recognizes that he will get Rome's taxes from the people. And we get a little insight into the nature of the character of this man when we fast forward a few decades and in the last year of his life, when his body is wasting away from disease, he's just about to die, he hears a rumor that there is a new king that was born in Bethlehem. And he kills all the baby boys just to take care of that. That's Herod the Great. And he is the last of the Idumeans that history really knows about. I tell you this story of history because all throughout this, these events, the nation of Idumea is dissolving. Its people are being absorbed into the Roman Empire through intermarriage and, and through identification as the Jews. And in the end, Obadiah's prediction is absolutely tr- comes true. They cease to exist as a people, and they have no place as a nation. See, history shows us this. When God speaks through his prophet, you can take it to the bank. It's not a matter of if this is going to happen it's a matter of when this is going to happen. Obadiah speaks of the certainty of Edom's doom and he says it this way in in verse 5 if thieves came to you if robbers in the night, oh what a disaster awaits you would they not steal only as much as they wanted if grape pickers came they would not would they not leave a few grapes but how Esau will be ransacked his hidden treasures pillaged all your allies will force you to the border your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Obadiah's point is this. If you get robbed, if a robber come, breaks into your house, he only takes away what he wants. He only takes away what he can carry, but some stuff is left. But for you, Edom, there will be nothing left. You will be erased as a people. You will lose your land, your possessions, and your existence, and it's all because of what you did when your cousins needed you. Good verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast uh, so much in the day of their trouble. Do you remember the, in school, the bully in school who always had that sidekick with him? That toady, that, that, that minion who kind of, you kind of, oh, weren't afraid of the minion, but he was always with the bully. And he got his importance from being with the bully. Well, Edom is that kind of a nation. Babylon is the bully. But they joined right in what Babylon was doing, and they looted the plunder, and they refused passage, and they gambled for the spoils that the Babylonians left when they left Jerusalem in in destruction. Edom should have looked at that scene and seen the heavy hand of God's judgment upon His people and said, we must repent and turn back to the one true God. But their pride and their generational hatred blinded them. And the Edomites were erased. They were a prideful people. They settled in the mountains of the area that we now know as Petra. I want to show you a picture. This is a picture of uh, the, uh, the, now the ruins of Petra. This is the famous library. If you've seen Indiana Jones movie, you've seen, seen this place. And, and uh, notice the color of the rock. Now, Petra was not made by the Edomites. This was, this was made by the Nabataeans, the civilization that, that forced them out. The Edomites lived on top of the mountain, and, on, on, and that's where their enclaves were. But notice the color of the rock red rock. The whole region is red rock. And the word Edom means red. And the one characteristic that comes from us about Esau from the Old Testament is that Esau was a man with a big red beard. And so think of it this way. Red beard took his people and moved into the land of red. And there they established a nation, but a nation on the heights But they were the the cousins of the Israelites. And so when Moses uh, brought the Israelites through this area, moving to the promised land... God remembered that relationship. God recalled the nearness of Esau and Jacob. And in Deuteronomy 2, He warned them, the Israelites not to attack the the Edomites. He says this, Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. God respected that relationship. He remembered that relationship. But that respect did not go both ways. And the Edomites were always resentful because of what Jacob did to Esau. And so they joined in to Babylon's destruction. Ezekiel was one of the captives who was carried away to Babylon. And Ezekiel noted what Edom was doing, and in his writings he says this, "'Because you harbored an ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword at the time of their calamity, the time of their punishment, had reached its climax. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will give you over to bloodshed and it will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a desolate waste and cut off from it all who come and go.'" And the nature of that punishment is described in verse 15 of Obadiah's prophecy. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. That's Obadiah's way of saying, what goes around comes around, and you will be destroyed. The final word of Obadiah's prophecy is actually a word of deliverance. But it's not deliverance for Edom. It's deliverance for Israel. Verse 17. But on the mount Zion will be deliverance it will be ho- it will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame the house of Esau will be stubble and they will set, upon- set it on fire and consume it there will be no survivors from the house of Esau the Lord has spoken and there are no Edomites today So after reading all of this and hearing the history You might be asking yourself a question, we're probably all asking the same question. Why is this in the Bible? Why is this given to us today to read? What is it that we can derive from this scripture? And there actually is a very important theological piece that we should not miss from Obadiah's writings. And that is that Obadiah writes to do battle against the idea that was rampant in pagan ancient cultures of what we call the territorial deity. The idea went like this. Pagan nations all throughout the world believe this, and that is that inside your nation, your God is powerful. Each of the nations has their own gods, their own set of gods, and inside the boundaries of those nations is where those gods are able to operate. That was the common mindset and so as you read the Old Testament, you will, you will, you will read again and again how when, when civilizations conquered another people, they took the items out of the temple of those people and they brought those items back to the temple of their gods. Why? Because it was a statement that said not only is our army stronger than your army, our God is stronger than your God because your God could not even defend you inside your own country. That's the statement that they're making there. But Obadiah knows what Jonah knows. Next week, we'll see the same exact thing. Next week, as we look at Jonah, we'll see the sailors who are sailing the ship with Jonah in it. They are shocked and amazed when Jonah says, my God is chasing me. They're amazed because they thought they left that God back in dry land. But now you're telling me that your God can catch up with us even here outside of his country? You see, Obadiah and Jonah and all the Old Testament prophets know this one thing. There is one God of heaven and earth, and he judges all people. All people answer to him. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in him. You still answer to him. That's the point. But based on that, there are some life lessons I want you to see. And life lesson number one relates to how you watch the news tonight. And that is, watch the news with confidence that God rules the world and the rise and the fall of nations. Understand that. Do not think for a minute that history is like a runaway train careening across the railway with nobody at the helm. Do not think that. It may seem that way sometimes, but it is not that way. Last week, I was uh, in Israel, and I want to show you a slide. Uh, I stood on the Golan Heights, and there I am, uh, that guy who I'm standing with, he is employed by the United Nations, and he is a United Nations observer. There are United Nations observers up and down uh, the, the ridge of mountains called the Golan Heights. If he were to step aside, you'd see that this gigantic um, binoculars pa- mounted on a tripod behind him. He spends all his time scanning the horizon, and what he's looking into is Syria and Lebanon, and he's watching to see if any of the strife that you hear about on the news is going to come this way towards Israel. We live in the day of cataclysmic world events. We are We are isolated from it, but it's cataclysmic what's happening in the world. Libya is a failed state. Iraq is a failed state. Syria is a failed state. Lebanon is a failed state. We don't hear about it right now, but there are three times as many Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon than the Lebanese army. The government is, is, you know, it's out of control. All these areas, and there's more that I could name, these areas are in upheaval. And you look at this situation and you're tempted to think, my goodness, nobody is at the helm. But here's what I want you to know. God is not weary and He is not worried, okay? God has it under control in the rise and the fall of nations. And He has a plan and His plan will not be thwarted. When God says something, you take it to the bank. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And God has a plan for His people. Secondly, on a personal note, we learn from Obadiah the harm of long-term grudge carrying. Right? I mean, really, brothers who couldn't get along turned into nations who couldn't get along, and we have violence ever since. It tells us the importance of being the one to cross the bridge of forgiveness. Being the one to lay down that grudge, that weapon that we carry. Somehow we think that if I don't forgive that person, they're going to feel my anger all the time. Guess what? They don't. Right? But you're carrying the grudge, and it's messing up your life. Put down the grudge and cross the bridge of forgiveness. Keep short accounts with the people in your life. Because this relationship could have been saved, but pride caused it not to be. And that leads me to my next point. Pride will blind you. Proverbs eleven two. 2, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. With humility comes, not weakness, comes wisdom. But pride distorts our perceptions. Somehow, living on the heights of Seir, on the red rocks of that mountain, the Edomites believed that they were able to uh, have everything their way. They thought somehow the heights of the mountains would protect them. But they forgot about the one who created the heights of the mountains, and he was the one who would bring them low. We reap what we sow, and if we reap in pride, we, we if we sow in pride, we reap a whirlwind. But if we sow in humility, we reap blessing. And fourthly, God will make a way of escape for us. The end, of the last word, is deliverance. On Mount Zion will be deliverance, not because of the mountain, but because of the Lord. Because of people who turn to Him in humility. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve heaven. But God will graciously give it to those who turn to Him in in repentance, seeking forgiveness. Deliverance can be found. So in conclusion, just let me ask you. Is there someone in your life with whom you need to keep short accounts? Is the Lord bringing to mind an issue where the grudge has been carried for too long and it's time to lay it down? Do it. Do it. Don't allow this story to be your story. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to do something today when you go home. It's going to be later on in the day. You're going to be watching the evening news and you're going to hear the stories of how the world is out of control. How kingdoms are falling strong men are rising and you're going to be tempted to think that everything is total chaos and just going crazy. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak back to the TV and I want you to say, yet there is a God in heaven who governs the affairs of men. That's what you say. Yet there is a God in heaven who governs the affairs of men and we trust in Him no matter what the newscast says. Because remember when I started... And I said, what God says will happen, will happen. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. Here's what he says. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne declaring, Now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when.